Beginning in Matthew 6.19, Jesus shifted his focus from the kingdom citizens' private life to their public life. Of first importance in our public life ought to be our relationship to wealth, our relationship to our prosperity, our property, and our possessions. Now, Jesus does not condemn wealth. Wealth is a gift from God to be used for his glory. He equips us with wealth so that we can care for our families as well as the poor and the needy. What Jesus did prohibit, however, was the improper handling of earthly wealth, namely the selfish, covetous, and greedy accumulation of wealth so often displayed in luxurious living, foolish spending, and the ignoring of the needs of the poor. You see, instead of vying for the accumulation of earthly wealth, our first priority as kingdom citizens is to accumulate heavenly wealth. Heavenly wealth can be accumulated by investing our earthly wealth in the care of the needy and in supporting our local church, our missionaries, and ministries. Additionally, where earthly wealth may be limited, heavenly wealth may still be accumulated as you invest your other treasures, such as the treasure of your time and your talent. Making an investment of your talent or your time to care for the needy or to meet the needs of a church or a missionary or a ministry also accumulates heavenly wealth. Now, building on the issue of wealth, Jesus directs his disciples' attention towards the issue of worry in Matthew 6, 25-34. Again, Jesus is now directing our attention to the issue of worry in Matthew 6, 25-34. Now, too often these verses are removed from the context and twisted to convey a condemnation against all types of fears and anxieties. Let's be clear here. There is a significant difference between fear, anxiety, and worry. Fear is the emotion of alarm in response to a perceived danger whether real or imaginary. Again, fear is an emotion of alarm in response to a perceived danger, whether real or imaginary. It is the God-given fight-or-flight mechanism that under normal conditions protects an individual from danger or threats. God created us with this ability to fear as a means of protection against various dangers. Again, Fear is the emotion of alarm in response to a perceived danger, real or imaginary. Anxiety is a long-term feeling of uneasiness, a vague perception of threats that will not go away. Again, anxiety is a long-term feeling of uneasiness, a vague perception of a threat that will not go away. Prior to the fall, humanity did not experience anxiety. Anxiety is a byproduct of the fall. Though anxiety is a byproduct of God's curse against sin, anxiety is not a sin. I'll say it again. Anxiety is not a sin. Though fear and anxiety are similar, they are not the same. Fear produces a momentary rush of adrenaline, whereas anxiety is a constant flow of adrenaline that places a strain on both the mind and body. 
Left unchecked, anxiety will steal your peace of mind. It can lead to bad decisions. It can result in isolation. And it can even lead to suicide. Hence, it's important to determine the root of anxiety. By determining the root of anxiety, one can find victory over anxiety. Now, contrary to what some believe, anxiety is not always caused by sin. Yes, sin can lead to anxiety, but not all anxiety is caused by sin. Some anxiety disorders result from chemical imbalances and must be treated by medical professionals. A good standard to determine whether one's anxiety is sin-based or physiological is by treating it. If the cause of anxiety is physiological, it will respond to medical treatments. If the cause is sin, medical treatments will not work, and the only treatment is spiritual, beginning with repentance. On the other hand, worry is not an emotion, but a mental action of bringing up conflicts or fears, mulling over them, and contemplating worst-case scenarios. Again, let me repeat this. Worry is not an emotion. It is a mental action of bringing up conflicts or fears, mulling over them, and contemplating worst-case scenarios. Worry will actually increase anxiety. While anxiety can stem from unconscious feelings, worry is a conscious act of choosing an unproductive coping skill. It is an unproductive means of problem-solving because it is applied to things that cannot be changed, avoided, or controlled. Worry becomes sin when we do not expect God to intervene in our lives to meet our needs and to accomplish His purposes. Regarding the subject of worry, Corey Ten Boom once stated, Worry is a cycle of inefficient thoughts whirling around a center of fear. Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows, it empties today of its strength. Now contextually in Matthew 6, Jesus is not dealing with fear or anxiety. Instead, he confronts the issue of worry over one's wealth. Hence, Jesus' excursus in Matthew 6, 25-34 is regarding worry and the kingdom citizen. Primarily, he sets forth that kingdom citizens should not worry over their prosperity, their property, or their possessions because God provides for one's basic necessities. Now, regarding worry in the kingdom citizen, Jesus states in Matthew 6, 25-30 that worry is incompatible with God's purposes. It is incompatible with God's purposes. Let's begin reading Matthew chapter 6, verse 25-30. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? 
Again, Jesus is stating that worry is incompatible with God's purposes. Note the phrase for this reason. That phrase relates Jesus' present excursus on worry directly back to his previous on wealth. Because we struggle with wealth, Jesus says, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. The phrase, I say to you, is an emphatic assertion used to denote Jesus' authority. In other words, what he says here about worry is not a suggestion, but a command. It is his final word on worry. Now, worry, merimneo, it means to be troubled by something. The command, do not be worried, is a present active imperative verb, meaning stop worrying or stop being troubled. Some translations render this verb as take no thought, as if Jesus is prohibiting thinking. However, Such a translation flies in the face of Jesus' statements later in verse 26 and 28 to look and to observe, both meaning to give thought to something. Now Jesus warns us about being troubled regarding our life in terms of food or drink and our bodies in terms of clothing. Food, drink, and clothing are references to the necessities of life. In order to procure these necessities, we need wealth. Now some strapped financially, are worried or troubled about how they are going to acquire their basic needs. Others, though financially well-off, are still worried about meeting their basic needs, so they selfishly and greedily accumulate more wealth. I can't help but think of the rich man in Luke 12, who was so worried that there might come a day when he would, could not or would not have his needs met that he built bigger and bigger barns. Again, note the command, do not be worried. This command does not mean that we neglect, ignore, or simply not care about our basic needs. That's not what Jesus is saying. Nor does this command prohibit forethought or planning for our future. Remember, when Jesus gave forth the model for prayer, he included a request for daily provisions. Give us this day our daily bread, Matthew 6, 11. Additionally, the command does not mean that believers are going to live trouble-free lives. You see, the command, do not be worried, prohibits us from becoming preoccupied with our daily provisions. Jesus warned, quote, The seed which fell among thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries, merimna, and riches and the pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. Luke 8, 14. The seed there is the gospel, implanted in the heart of a person. This individual professes salvation, but soon the thorns of earthly worries, riches and pleasures, choke out the seed and make it incapable of producing fruit. The lack of fruit demonstrates that though one professed salvation, they did not possess salvation. Now, believer, you must beware of the dangers of worrying over your daily needs or a preoccupation with riches and pleasures as such things will destroy the seed of the gospel. Friends, Paul warns us about such worries and prescribes prayer as the antidote for worry. He states in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious, or literally, do not worry, for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication for thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You see, Jesus is prohibiting us from worrying about such things because, quote, life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, this is known as an a fortiori 
argument, an argument from the greater to the lesser. Life is greater than food, and the body is greater than clothing. In other words, food, water, clothing, and shelter are not the be-all and the end-all. God created the human body and infused it with life for more than simply feeding it, watering it, clothing it, and sheltering it. God created our human bodies and infused them with life to create in us a creature that would worship and glorify Him. Psalm 100, verse 2 and 3. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. See, let's look at it from this perspective. If God's purpose was to create a creature that would worship and glorify Him, would not God then provide said creature with the basic necessities of life so that they could accomplish the purpose for which they were created? In short, yes, God would provide His creatures with the means to sustain life and body so that they could worship Him. See, the God who created life and body will sustain that life and body. Jesus provides two illustrations to support his claim, the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Now, in his first illustration, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worthy much more than they? Now, this first illustration demonstrates why it is foolish to worry about food and water. Again, the verb look, emblepo, means to think, to discern, to contemplate. When worries over wealth begin to creep into your mind, believer, you need to contemplate the birds. Now you say that's for the birds, but Jesus says contemplate on the birds. You see, birds in general do not plant seeds, do not reap harvest, and do not store their harvest in barns. Nonetheless, their needs are provided for by your Heavenly Father. Now by referring to God as your Heavenly Father, Jesus drives home the idea of God's loving care. Jesus has repeatedly emphasized God's fatherhood throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He wants us as kingdom citizens to know and understand that our relationship with Him is more than servant and king. It is a relationship of child and father. Let's take a moment and consider how God feeds the birds. He created some to eat seeds, some to eat flesh, some to eat insects. However, God does not miraculously cause seeds, flesh, and insects to appear before the birds. When God created them, He placed the means to hunt for seeds, flesh, and insects to feed themselves within their nature. Now, arguing from the lesser to the greater, Jesus asks, Are you not worth much more than they? God created us in His image and His likeness to rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1.26 Now since God providentially cares for the birds over which we are to rule, He will also providentially care for us who are created in His image and likeness. To His illustration, Jesus adds a bit of logic. Who of you, being worried, can add a single hour to his life. Now, some translations render the Greek term hilikia as stature instead of life. Hence, they render the phrase as who can add one cubit to his span of life. Now, the term rendered as cubit, picus, can mean a cubit or 18 to 21 inches, but it can also mean a time span. Now, the context must be the determining factor in the translation. 
Adding 18 to 21 inches to one's height or adding time to one's lifespan would be significant. Does it matter which way one translates the phrase? Absolutely. Listen, as believers, we want the most accurate translation of what Jesus said. Thus, we need to determine which translation fits better in the context. Now, the context is all about worrying over wealth and basic needs. Worry does not shorten anyone's height, but medically, worry has been demonstrated to shorten one's life. Hence, Jesus is stating that worrying does not increase one's life. Instead, it decreases it. Now, notice in his second illustration, Jesus says, Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Now, the first illustration dealt with food and water. The second deals with clothing. Again, the verb observe, katamanthano, means to think, and it conveys the sense of watching and learning something. So, friends, when you're worried about clothing, you need to watch and learn from the flowers. Again, you're worried about clothing? Watch and learn from the flowers. You're worried about food and water? Think about the birds. Now, the lilies, crinon, refers to any number of flowers such as anemones, poppies, irises, or gladioli, all of which would be common spring flowers in the region of Galilee. The flowers were like clothing upon the fields of grass. And although they do not toil, nor do they spin, Jesus says, not even Solomon in all his glory clothes himself like one of these. In other words, these flowers are more beautiful than all of Solomon's beautiful clothes. Now let's observe how the flower functions. It does not toil, copio, or work in the field, nor does it spin, nitho, or work natural fibers into thread. Nonetheless, God provides all the flower needs to grow from a seedling to a fruit-bearing plant. God provided for the flowers by creating the chemical process by which they draw sustenance from the sun and soil. To his illustration of the flowers, Jesus adds clarification and a contrast. He says, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Albeit these flowers are beautiful, They are mowed down with the grass and used as fuel for their ovens. If God would clothe the grass of the fields with flowers to have them burned up in an oven, can we not trust him to clothe us, seeing we have a much greater purpose than the flowers of the fields? Now, before we continue on to verses 31 to 34, we need to discuss the final statement of verse 30. Jesus refers to his disciples, his kingdom citizens, as you of little faith. Sadly, this phrase had been misunderstood and misused, even abused. Too often it has been viewed as a confrontational statement, meant as a rebuke of someone's lack of faith. However, a proper word study of oligopistos reveals an altogether different meaning. A literal rendering of the term translates as little faith ones. Little faith ones. Now let's consider some other usages of the Greek term alagapistos, translated here as you of little faith. While being tossed about in the storm, the disciples were scared in their boat. 
In Matthew 8, 26, before calming the sea, Jesus asked them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? To translate another way, Why are you fearful, little faith ones? In Matthew 14, 31, while Peter was sinking in the water, Jesus grabbed him and asked him, You have little faith, why did you doubt? Again, the question can be rendered, Little faith one, why did you doubt? Realizing they had forgotten to bring bread with them, in Matthew 14, 31, Jesus asked, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Again, the question can be rendered, Little faith ones, why do you talk about having no bread? The problem is that in each of these verses, we are supposing that Jesus is rebuking the disciples. However, listen carefully. The term oligopistos is not confrontational, but endearing. Though physically adults, spiritually they were children. To put it another way, they were not full-grown sheep, but little lambs. Hence, Jesus is lovingly addressing them as little faith ones or little lambs. He's not berating them. No, he's lovingly exhorting them. As Stuart Weber states, Jesus was asking, Do you trust your father or not? Not with a slap in their face, but with an arm around their shoulder. So regarding worry and the kingdom citizen, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 31-34, that worry is incompatible with God's purpose and incompatible with our purpose, the kingdom citizen's purpose. Worry is incompatible with the kingdom citizen's purpose. Let's begin reading in verse 31. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what we will drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Again, Jesus issues the command, do not worry. Now previously in verse 25, he used the present imperative form of merimaneo, meaning stop worrying. Now in verse 31, he uses the aorist subjunctive form of merimaneo, meaning don't start worrying. So if you are worrying, stop. If you haven't started, don't. Okay? So if you're worrying, you need to stop. And if you haven't started worrying, don't start. Now believers, we must not begin worrying about what we will eat, drink, or wear for clothing. Jesus forbids us as kingdom citizens from worrying about such things because, why? The Gentiles. The irreligious eagerly seek all these things. The irreligious are so driven by material things that worry overtakes them. Again, Jesus assures us that as kingdom citizens, we do not need to worry or fret over our basic needs or any other material thing because your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Again, by referring to God as our heavenly Father, he drives home that idea of God's loving care. What loving, caring father does not provide for his children? Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will address the issue of God's loving care. However, I think it would be beneficial to take a preview of what Jesus says. He announces in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good 
for those who ask him. Friends, when we, ha- when we behave irreligiously and worry about our basic needs or any other material object, we are lacking faith in God and his promises. As R.H. Mount says, worry is, a pr- is practical atheism and an affront to God. I'll say it again. Worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. You know, when you think about that, how many of you worry? How many of you are practically atheist? Even though you're, you're a born-again child of God, but you're struggling with that worry, you're acting like an atheist. According to Philippians 4.19, Paul declares, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Folks, God cannot lie. Therefore, if he promises to supply, plurao, or provide completely for all of your needs, then, believer, we need to take that promise to the bank. Now, Jesus reveals that worrying is incompatible with our purpose, kingdom citizen. The kingdom citizen purpose. Worrying is incompatible with it. That purpose is what? To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek, zeteo, does not mean to look for something. Instead, it means to turn to him, to strive humbly and sincerely to follow and obey him. So, to put it another way, humbly and sincerely follow and obey his kingdom and his righteousness. And and it implies effort, okay? It does not happen by accident. Furthermore, Jesus states that we are to seek God's kingdom and righteousness first. The term first, protos, does not refer to the first in the series of things. The term communicates the idea of priority or prominence. As such, protos can be translated as this is of greatest importance. In other words, seeking God's kingdom and righteousness is not step one in a series of steps, but an action of greatest importance for kingdom citizens. This is your primary purpose, your primary objective. To humbly and sincerely follow and obey his kingdom and his righteousness. Believer, give some thought to how you're making out with that. Now, what is God's kingdom? God's kingdom is the sphere of God's eternal rule. However, his kingdom exists in several manifestations. First, the kingdom of God is universal. It includes all things in the created realm. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 3, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Second, the kingdom of God is spiritual in that it is presently includes all who have repented and submitted to Jesus' lordship. Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. See, right now, the kingdom of God is a spiritual realm, and everyone who has repented, of their sin, put their faith in the gospel, is a part of that kingdom. Third, the kingdom of God is literal in that Christ will in the future physically reign on the earth. Daniel 2.44 In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. 
So again, presently, as kingdom citizens, we as believers are experiencing the manifestation of God's kingdom in its spiritual form. Remember when Jesus modeled how to pray. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done, Matthew 6.10. You see, God's kingdom comes as God's will is done. In other words, seeking God's kingdom means what? Doing God's will. Irrevocably connected to God's kingdom is His righteousness, to which we are to strive. You say, well, what is God's righteousness? As an attribute of God, righteousness, dioxine, is God's justice and uprightness. Richard Strauss states, God's righteousness or justice is the natural expression of His holiness. In relationship to humanity, righteousness has three aspects. We've heard this before. We'll review it again. It has a legal aspect. It has a social aspect. It has a moral aspect. Legal righteousness refers to the legal standing that declares us justified based on faith. Social righteousness is conformity to God's righteousness and justice in the world. Moral righteousness is the imputed righteousness of Christ that is possessed by us so that our conduct conforms to God's moral law. Now in Matthew 6.33, when Jesus commands us to seek first his righteousness, he is referring to moral righteousness as the standard to which we are to conform. Hence, seeking God's moral righteousness means sincerely striving to obey God's law. As R.C. Sproul states, uh, righteousness is doing what is right in the sight of God. Righteousness is doing what is right in the sight of God. You know, I'm afraid, my friends, that some of you have confused spirituality with righteousness. Got a lot of spiritual people. Don't know that we have a lot of righteous people. See, the danger of confusing the two is there are plenty who claim to be spiritual, but not righteous. You see, spirituality is conforming to various disciplines such as studying the Bible, praying, attending church, and evangelizing. While all of these spiritual disciplines are good, they're worthless if they do not drive you to righteousness, if they don't drive you to live a life that conforms to God's person, God's nature, God's law. When you see spirituality as the goal of your Christian walk or the means of pleasing God, I've got news for you, you fail miserably. All your life becomes is an outward conformity to a checklist and you never attain the righteousness of God. Heed the warning of Matthew 5.20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus promises that all these things will be added to you. These things refer to food, water, clothing, shelter. That verb added, prostitheme, means to give as a benefit. Hence, it appears that Jesus is promising that those who humbly and sincerely strive to obey God and His law will be blessed with the provision of their basic needs. Now, immediately, there appears to be an issue. The experience of many believers does not align with the theology behind the statement. History is full of examples of Christians who have been deprived of clothing or shelter and died of starvation and thirst. How are we to solve the seeming tension between experience and theology? Perhaps the simplest answer is found in the grammar. Note that when Jesus says all these things will be added to you, the verb will be added is in the future tense. Now the future tense can refer to a future event or it can be used as a guarantee that something will occur. While the future tense guarantees the promise will be fulfilled, it does not imply when it will occur. Is it possible that the promise is intended to be fulfilled when King Jesus establishes the kingdom on earth? 
Now, there is no doubt there will be no need to worry when the kingdom is established on earth, as Jesus will reign in righteousness and peace, creating an era of prosperity. In that day, no one who obeys the king will lack any good thing. While the fulfillment of the promise could be instituted during the establishment of God's kingdom upon earth, it does not provide a sufficient answer as to why Jesus would prohibit worry in the present age. To forbid people from worrying about their daily needs based on a promise they will not receive in their lifetime is not only counterproductive, but it presents God as a cosmic charlatan. Perhaps there's another answer. You see, the promise to provide one's basic need is attached to the command, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The fulfillment of the promise is conditional. So the question must be asked, is this command given to us individually or corporately? Now certainly there's an aspect by which the command is given to each individual believer. But the command is also corporate. Remember beginning in Matthew 6.19, Jesus is dealing with the public responsibilities of kingdom citizens. Note the usage of the plural pronouns in the context. In Matthew 6.25, Jesus uses the plural second person personal pronoun you, which we could render as all of you. Hence, I say to all of you, do not worry about what all of you will eat, drink, or put on. As well, in Matthew 6.31, Jesus uses the plural first person personal pronoun we, which can be rendered as we all. Do not worry, saying, what will we all eat, drink, or wear? The point of noting the plural usage of the pronouns is to underscore that Jesus is speaking to the individual disciples, listen, as part of a community. That is, the community of kingdom citizens should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, as we corporately strive to obey God's law, humbly and sincerely, we can bank on the promise that our basic needs will be met. Now, let's ask this question. Would this interpretation of the promise then align the reality of a believer's experience? In short, yes, it would. I want you to look at the look at the book of Acts. Look at the example of Jesus' disciples in the book of Acts. Acts two forty four to forty five says, "And all those who believed were together, had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone who might have need." Acts four thirty two to thirty five says, "And the congregation of those who believed." were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. You see, my friends, the original disciples who listened to that Sermon on the Mount took what Jesus said to heart and obeyed. Together, the wealthy and the poor sought God's kingdom and righteousness. The wealthy believers who had sold possessions gave to the church elders to provide for those poor believers in need. By providing for the poor, the wealthy believers performed moral and social righteousness. They obeyed God's law. They cared for the needy. In turn, the poor believers' basic needs were met, and they had no reason to worry. The command was corporately obeyed, and the promise was corporately kept. Now, friends, if we put such a practice into place, that's radical for us to think. Oh, how can we do this? It's radical for the modern believer. It's radical for the church today. But nonetheless, this is the type of stewardship that God commands. 
In order to see Matthew 6.33 be a reality, individually believers and corporately the church needs to make drastic changes in how we budget and spend our earthly wealth. Consider Paul's admonishment to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 8.13-15. For this is not for the ease of others and your affliction, but by way of equality, At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality, as it is written. He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Jesus closes by repeating the command, Do not worry. Again, he uses the aerosubjunctive form, meaning do not start to worry. We are not to start worrying about tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow will care for itself. Again, he's not saying we should not plan for the future. But to worry or to mull over future troubles, contemplating worst case scenarios is wrong. Plan for tomorrow, but don't fret about it. Furthermore, believers, we must not worry about tomorrow because each day has enough trouble of its own. Trouble, kakia, refers to afflictions or adversity. You see, friend, God has not promised you a trouble-free life. It's ridiculous, then, to worry about some perceived trouble or affliction on the horizon. You don't need to worry about future adversity. God's in control. He either directly brings the adversity into your life or at least allows it. You do well to remember the words of Job in Job 2.10. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? As well, believers, we would do well to remember Paul's admonishment in Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. While kingdom citizens, we don't need to worry about our basic needs, I want to give you two areas of caution. One, God's promise to provide for your basic need does not excuse you from working for your daily provisions. Again, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if you're not willing to work, then you're not to eat either. Just as the bird's God-given nature drives them to find food, and flowers draw sustenance from the sun and soil through God-given chemical process, so too God provided humanity their basic needs through our God-given ability to work. And two, God promised to provide for our basic needs doesn't excuse us from caring for the needs of the poor. Righteous and unrighteous people live in conditions that are less than adequate. Some live in areas ravaged by disease, disasters, or drought. Nonetheless, there are abundant resources throughout the rest of the world to meet the needs of the less fortunate. Sadly, the seeming lack of food, weather, and clothing and shelter is due to selfish and greedy individuals who do not want to share. God has designed to meet the basic needs of the poor through the faithful giving of those with abundant resources. Jesus' command, do not worry, means stop worrying about material things. Don't start worrying about material things because it's incompatible with the king's purpose. The God who created us will sustain us. The command do not worry also implies that we don't need to worry because it's incompatible with our purpose as kingdom citizens. Instead of worrying and fretting over things you can't control, seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. And I believe that when we corporately prioritize pursuing God's kingdom and righteousness over material things, God will come through and provide all those things of which we have need. Let's pray. Through Jesus, our high priest, Father, we come to you, glorifying you as our king, praying that you would enable us to seek your kingdom, to seek your righteousness. We pray, Father, that we might humbly and sincerely obey your word and will. 
Help us to that end. Father, forgive us for our tendency to be selfish, to be greedy. Father, forgive us for worrying. Forgive us for doubting your promises. I pray, Lord, that you would watch over us, that you would guide us, that you might provide all of our needs. And again, we praise you and say, Amen.